We're turning your Bibles to Luke 23. Luke 23, we're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke shows Jesus to be the man. He's the man. He's the Savior. He is the one who's the final sacrifice and substitute for the sins of the world. We're seeing the crucifixion of our Savior. He's been arrested, tried, beaten, and taken to the place of execution. Between, between two criminals, he is crucified. Why? Well, for us. He's not dying as a criminal. He's dying as a Savior. He's taken our place. He's paying for our sins. This morning, as we continue our study, we are seeing Jesus take the sin of the world on himself, that he is separated from the Father. He cries out with that really famous saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? Why is Jesus Christ forsaken by the Father at this time? Now, we understand that Jesus is making the payment for sin and he realized that he indeed is our sacrifice and our substitute. And so the goal is, as we study, that we'd gain from the study this morning is we'd see our Savior on the cross. There's some powerful things there. Now, do you realize that all people, we have a problem. There is a barrier, really, between God and man. We have a problem, and it's really twofold. First of all, it begins with the fact that we've all sinned. I mean, it's true. We know it. We've all done wrong. The basic truth is that human beings aren't perfect. We sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, the second part is that the wages of sin is death, meaning the payment of sin is death. It's separation from God because that's what death is, it's separation. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. Death is separation from God, and since we've all sinned, we're all supposed to be separated from God forever. Well, there's the big problem. So here's the question. How can fallen man have a relationship with the living God? I mean, he's perfect and we're not. The wages of sin is death and separation. How can a person be saved from separation from God? Well, the solution, of course, is the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is simple. It is how the perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. The perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to the problem. He is the Savior. That's why the Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us that he gave his son, gave his son to die on the cross to pay for sin, that whoever would believe would not perish, <clears throat> would not be separated, but have eternal life. So he gave his son to be the Savior for us. Jesus came <clears throat> to pay the penalty for sin. He took our place and became the substitute. Now, many of you, we've heard this all our lives for a lot of you. You can say, oh, I've always heard Jesus came and died for me. He died on the cross. He paid for my sin. We've got to realize exactly what happened there. The perfect righteous God took your place. He took my place. We're supposed to be separated from God forever. We've sinned. We've come short of the glory of God. We're not supposed to get to be with God, but Jesus Christ came and took our place, died in our place as our substitute. The Bible says in John 3.17, He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Romans 5.8 says, he dem God demonstrates His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to realize that. Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying for our sin to be our substitute. And the key, that all who will believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Every human being who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior will have eternal life. And they have at the exact moment they believe this morning. As we continue our study going through the Gospel of Luke, and if maybe this is your first time or something, we go through the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a pretty long time looking at our Savior Jesus Christ. And now we're at the really almost to the very end. Jesus is on the cross as we're studying this passage. He is dying for our sins. And he's, he's, there's just so much there. And we, we see that uh, he is going to be separated from the Father. He dies because the wages of sin is death, and Jesus dies for us. So our goal as we study our passage is that we gain an understanding 
of what Jesus did for us and for all mankind on the cross. Let's begin. Let's think about where we are. Jesus has been arrested. He's been tried. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. He's been taken to the place of the skull. Now, the Hebrew word for skull is Golgotha. And the Latin word for skull is Calvary. And so if you've heard people say, you go to Calvary's cross, well, when they say Calvary, what they're saying is skull, because that's what the word means. We're not sure why it was called the skull. Sometimes people say it looked like a skull. Maybe other people had been dead, died there. Who knows exactly why it's called skull, but that's where they crucified him. They took him there. Now, he is nailed to the cross between two criminals. And I want you to realize this, that in man's eyes, he is a criminal. He's dying with criminals. He's numbered with the transgressors. But in God's eyes, he is the Savior. Now, something I want you to understand and remember, that there is only one Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. I want you to understand something. You are not the Savior. It is not what you do to get you to God. It is not your good works, your righteousness, or anything that gets you to God. It is Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to the Father, and it's by faith in Him. He is the Savior. Jesus is on the cross as our substitute, our sacrifice, and Savior. In fact, 1 John 2, 2 says He is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Now, as we've been going through this, we're seeing Christ on the cross. We've seen a number of things. First of all, we're getting the flow of the events. We're trying to see about the time, when He got put on the cross, what He says on the cross, all the different things that happened. We're getting the flow of these events. We're also seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. There were were a large number of prophecies that were talked about that were fulfilled. Now, there were a whole bunch of prophecies fulfilled when Jesus Christ came the first time to die on the cross. There are going to be a whole bunch of prophecies that will be filled when Jesus Christ comes the second time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I guarantee you that God's word is true, and as everyone was fulfilled his first coming, everyone will be fulfilled in his second coming. So we're seeing some of those. And the third thing is we're looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Now, to do that, we can't stay just in the Gospel of Luke because Luke has three of the sayings, but the other four sayings are at different places. So we have to go to some of the different Gospels. Let me remind you what they are. I didn't write, we didn't write the whole saying out, but the very first one was, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And that's where he puts first put on the cross and he's praying for those soldiers and those people who are crucifying him. The second statement we saw was, to, he told to the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that was the thief on the cross who had believed in Jesus and said, don't forget me when you come in the kingdom. And Jesus said, don't worry, today you'll be with me. It was powerful. And then we saw, this was also last time, that we saw that he turned to his mother and said, woman, behold your son. And then he turned to John and said, John, behold your mother. And this is Jesus dying on the cross. And he entrusted his mother to John, who was one of the disciples, so that, that after Jesus dies, that the mother would not be alone. And he entrusted her to John. Now, the fourth one is the one we're going to see this morning, which he says, the passage says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll talk about why, why did God forsake him? What is it, what's happening? What's going on there? The next one after that is, I thirst. He literally says, I am thirsty. We'll see that. That ties in this morning. And then the next two we'll get in the next week or two, but it's the most powerful one, probably the one that means the most to us when he says... It is finished. And what he's meaning there is the work on the cross is finished. He has paid for the sins of mankind. That is the key. We'll see it. And then he ends it by saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he goes back to the Father in that sense. We've seen the first three statements. This morning we're going to see the next two. And then in the next couple of weeks we'll see the rest of it. We are going through this seeing our Savior on the cross. Now, this morning we're going to really look at a hard part. And that's where everything turns dark. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And we'll have to go to several other places to put the thing together. Let me break down the passage for you. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, we're going to see that darkness comes, uh, darkness on the cross. In other words, while he's on the cross, there's darkness. That's verses 44 and 45 of Luke 23. Then we're going to have to go over to Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45, going through verse 49, where Jesus is forsaken. We see where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People think he's calling for Elijah because he actually says it in Aramaic, where he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini. And, and so they, they don't know what he's saying. They think, I think he's calling for Elijah, and we'll see how that goes. And then the very last part we'll see is Jesus basically is thirsty. That's John. We'll have to go to John 19. So we'll go to three places this morning, and actually more than that. Just so, so get ready to turn so that you can see how things fit together. Uh, it's very powerful. Now let me let's think about the timeline for just a second. Jesus was arrested in the garden that night. He was arrested by the Jewish leaders. All night they had him and they tried him and they did two different trials of Jesus during the night. Very early in the morning, they all got up and they had one more trial. So he had three trials before the Jews. Then before 7 o'clock in the morning, they took him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. Roman governor Pontius Pilate looked at him and said, I find nothing wrong with him. They began to say things and Pontius Pilate found out that Jesus basically had done his ministry in Galilee. He knew that belonged to a man named Herod Antipas. That was a ruler there. So he said, let me, let me send him to Herod. So he sent him to Herod. Herod looked at him, talked to him. Jesus wouldn't even answer him. He said, I find nothing wrong with, with him. And so he sends him back to Jesus, uh, sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate see, deals with him one more time. So three times Pilate has trials. One for him, one before Herod, and one back for Pilate again. And he finds him not guilty. But the, the Jewish people, the religious leaders stir up the crowd. And finally Pilate says, okay. It's over. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll release a man named Barabbas, and we'll send Jesus on to be crucified. He knew it was, he knew it was wrong. And they had beaten Jesus. They took him to the place of the skull. All of this, and they put Jesus on the cross by 9 o'clock in the morning. And from 9 to 12, he's on the cross. And what we've seen already in that time period, we've seen that they cast lots for his clothes, that they made fun of him, that people, the religious leaders and people came by and made faces at him and said things about him when he was on the cross. And while he's on the cross, he says three things at this point. He says, forgive them. He says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he says to his mother, woman, this is your son. Son, behold your mother. And that's, what he's, that's where we are. Now something is about to change. And it's big. Just remember, the soldiers are at the cross. The religious leaders are at the cross. The women are at the cross. Big crowds at the cross. And now the world's greatest event is about to take place. It is one that has been foreshadowed from the beginning of time. What's going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to take your sin and my sin and the sin of every human being that's ever lived and ever will live. And he's going to take that sin on himself and he's going to pay the penalty and he's going to be separated from the Father. Now, this has been promised from the beginning. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, when they sinned, God came to him and said, he had a promise. He said, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. They knew there was someone coming who would deal with sin. We go to the time of Abraham, and God told Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham knew the Messiah was coming through him. He came to King David and said, David, you'll have a son that will sit on the throne who will be the Messiah and the King. David knew he was coming. The Old Testament all the way through is looking forward to a Messiah who's going to come, who's going to die on the cross, who's going to pay for sin. We are seeing it in this passage. This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah who's coming to pay for the sin of mankind. 
Jesus on the cross will take our sin. He will take the sin of the world. He will pay for it. He will, as we're looking at the passage, we know he's already done that, but we're talking about it as we're looking at it. And he is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happens? Watch. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. Now you have to understand Jewish time. The Jewish day began at 6 o'clock in the morning, and so the first hour was at 7, and the second hour was 8, and the third hour was at 9, and the fourth hour was at 10, the sixth hour was at 12. That's how they did it. So they put Jesus Christ on the cross at the third hour in the morning, which was 9 o'clock. It says here, from the sixth hour to uh, hour, darkness fell upon the whole land till the ninth hour. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it became dark. And... It says, darkness fell upon the whole land. Now, to be real honest with you, you can't tell much about this verse. Because you could look at it and say, does it mean darkness fell upon Jerusalem, the city? Does it mean the whole land of Israel? Or does it mean the whole world? Because the Greek word for earth and land and world, sometimes it's translated by the same word. So you can't really tell. It could be that God only let it be dark in that part of the world. It could be that he had darkness over the whole world so that no matter where any human beings were, they knew something was happening. So he says, now is the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock, and darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. Now what is going on? Why does it become dark? Notice verse 45 goes on and says, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. When it says the sun was obscured, it says literally it ceased. The sun ceased. It stopped shining. What's going on? Some people say, well, it had to be an eclipse. Well, it wasn't an eclipse because it's a full moon. Remember, it's the 14th day of the first month of Nisan. That's Passover. This is Passover. It's a full moon. It's not an eclipse. What happened? I think God stopped the sun from shining. Now, some people say, oh, come on. I mean, could he do that? He made it. He made everything. He can do everything, right? I mean, do you realize that in the Old Testament there was a time that he stopped the sun from moving for a whole day? And there was another time that a king, that God sent word to the king that he was going to recover from an illness and he would get to live. And and he said, I would like a sign. And so God said, do you want the sun to go this way or this way? Meaning up and down some steps. And, of course, going this way would be the normal way the sun went. And he said, well, the sun could normally go that way. How about having the sun go backwards? And he did. So if God can make the sun go backwards or stop the sun for a whole day, he can sure make it darkness anytime he wants to. And at this point in time, darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, total darkness. And why the darkness? Because he's taken our sin. The sin of every human being is placed on Jesus Christ. When the sin of every human being is placed on Jesus Christ, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. God the Father is going to separate from the Son because the Son is going to take sin and the Father is going to turn away from him because he's going to be separated. And when he turns away, symbolically he sends darkness over the whole world so that people will know that something is going on. Now, by the way, have you ever thought about this? At the birth of Jesus Christ... There was light and angels and the great star. And at the death of Christ, there is darkness. 
three hours of darkness. Do you remember that at the time of the Passover in Egypt, before the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, there were three days of darkness. And now before the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there will be three hours of darkness. What happened? Hold your place in Luke 23, and I want you to turn to Matthew 27. Okay, Matthew 27, that's just a couple of books toward the front of your Bible from Luke and, and get to Matthew and get to Matthew 27. And if you can, get to verse 45. Go ahead and turn there because it's a lot more fun when you look at it and you see how it fits together. So Matthew 27, look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, I want you to understand something. That in, in that day and time, you remember we said that Jesus got put on the cross on, at 9 o'clock in the morning, and now he's on the cross, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon? I want you to understand something. If you know Jewish history, when they did the sacrifices, they had two sacrifices every day. They had the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. Guess what time the morning sacrifice was? It was at 9 o'clock in the morning. Guess what time the evening sacrifice was? It was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus goes on the cross at the time of the morning sacrifice. He is going to be separated from the Father, paying for our sins at the time of the evening sacrifice. All fits together perfectly. Listen what happens. Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Why is it darkness? Because fellowship is broken from the Father and the Son. When fellowship is broken, the Father turns away from the Son and there is darkness on the earth because Jesus Christ is taking your sin and my sin and the sin of every person on himself to be the paper for sin. Jesus is on the cross dying for us. Look at these verses. Verse Peter 2.24, He bore in His body our sins when He was on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God has made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray, each one our own way, but the Lord hath laid on Him all our iniquities. The sins of every person were placed on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says, He has been offered once to bear the sins. He came the first time to die, the second time he will come to reign. He came the first time to take our sin, the second time he comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What did Jesus say when the fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken? Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour, it's the time of the evening sacrifice. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini, that is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. Why was he separated from the Father? Why did the Father separate from him? Because he's taken our sin. Sin breaks fellowship. The perfect, righteous God breaks fellowship with the Son as the Son takes our sin. Now, he's speaking in Aramaic. That's what Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabbathini is. It's Aramaic. Matthew has to explain it. Because we don't know Aramaic, right? He gives it and he says, oh, by the way, that means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is forsaken because he's taken the sins of every human being on himself. He's taken my sins and your sins. You could say this, the reason Jesus Christ was separated from the Father was because of you and me. He took our sins because of every human being. He says, my God, my God. Sometimes I think it means my God the Father, my God the Spirit. Why have you forsaken me? Because 
It was there. Now, I want you to see something that's incredible. You, you might just put your hand or hold your place there in Matthew 27 because we're going to come back there. But I want you to see Psalm 22. Okay? Turn over to Psalm 22. That's sort of like the middle of your Bible to, you know, to, to the Psalms and then Psalm 22. And I want you to see this, this passage. As you're turning there, I want you to understand that Psalm 22 was written by King David. King David lived a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. And he writes Psalm 22. It's called a Psalm of David. But when you look at Psalm 22, you realize that even though David wrote it, it is about the Messiah, and it is about the Messiah on the cross. It is a foreshadow. It was written a thousand years before Jesus ever came, and it shows what happened to Jesus on the cross. I want you to notice Psalm 22, verse 1. How does it start? Look what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's David writing a thousand years before Jesus, but it is a picture and a foreshadow of what Jesus says. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he takes the sin of mankind on himself. I want you to see several other things. Look at verse 7. Look what it says. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. That means they make fun of me. They wag their heads saying... You remember we have already seen that when Jesus was on the cross, the people down in front of him were wagging their heads. That means make faces. It means make fun of somebody. It said a thousand years before it ever happened, that's what would happen. Look down a little bit at, look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. What's that talking about? That's talking about Jesus being crucified on the cross. You understand this was a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. They didn't have crucifixion then. In fact, if you'd have talked to the Jewish people, they wouldn't have said crucify somebody. They would have said stone them. This was a thousand years before it ever happened. One more verse. Look at verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast Lots. That's exactly what happened. We saw it that they had Jesus and they, the Roman soldiers didn't want to tear up that particular garment, so they cast lots for his clothes. Psalm 22 is a foreshadow of what would happen to Jesus a thousand years before he was ever born. Go back to Matthew 27. We've got one, just a couple of things I want you to see. Matthew 27. <clears throat> And as you're back there, verse 39, notice what it says. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, doing what? Wagging their heads. That fulfills Psalm 22. They also said in verse 40, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. He is the Son of God, but He cannot come down from the cross because He's on the cross for us. If He comes down from the cross, He cannot save us. He must stay on the cross so He can save us. He is going to prove that He is the Son of God. It will not be by coming down off the cross. It will be by rising from the dead three days later. That's how He proves He's the Son of God. Powerful truths. Verse 46, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathini, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You realize this, that he was forsaken by the nation, by the nation of Israel. He came into his own people. John 1.11, he came into his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. He was also forsaken by his disciples. You remember he told them that they were going to get him and they would all run off. And they did. And notice he is forsaken by the Father. Jesus Christ died, 
fellowship was broken with the Father so that we will not have to be separated from God forever, that we can have fellowship with the Heavenly Father. Now, something I want you to understand. When Jesus Christ is on the cross, He is dying for our sins. He is dying spiritually. This is before His physical death. Do not get confused. When sometimes people say, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, they're thinking of His physical death. His physical death did not pay for our sins. His spiritual death being separated from the Father is what pays for our sins. By the time He dies physically, sins are already paid for. So I want you to grasp this. That when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness came upon the earth. He is dying spiritually for us because the wages of sin is death. He is dying for our sins. He pays the penalty. And that's why when he gets ready to die physically, do you remember what he says? He says, and we'll see it next week, he says, it is finished. The payment's already made. He dies physically so that he can conquer physical death because physical death is a result of spiritual death. So just understand that when he dies on the cross, spiritually being separated from the Father, that's when he paid for your sins. When he dies physically and rises again, that's when he conquers physical death. They're two different things. So I just wanted you to think about that and see that. We'll see it more in in the next week or two when we get to that. Now, you realize... That because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because he's paid for sin, because he's died and rose again, he's conquered death as well. Anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ, who will trust in him, will have eternal life. They'll have salvation. It is that simple. He's the Savior. He died for us. We are seeing in the Scripture Jesus dying for your sins and my sins, offering to us the gift of eternal life, which comes by faith. Watch what happened. Look at verse 47 of Matthew. It says, And some of those who were standing by, when they heard him, they began saying, This man's calling for Elijah. They thought he was calling for Elijah. He was speaking in Aramaic. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathini. They thought he was calling for Elijah. And so what did they do? Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now there's something else he says before they go get that drink. And the only way you can find out is to turn to John 19. So turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and I want you to see what happens. It's John 19. It's verse 28. Now there's something very special in this verse that you have to see. And if you're not careful, you'll read it too fast. Look at John 19, verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Here's the words I want you to think about. All things had already been accomplished. Before he says, I am thirsty. Before he says, it is finished. What has already been accomplished? It is the payment for our sins. He's already separated from the Father. Darkness has been on the earth from 12 to 3. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now that it's already been accomplished, he says, in order to fulfill Scripture... I am thirsty. The scripture that he fulfills is Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, In my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, which means cheap wine. And if you notice, 
He said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. That's called vinegar. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Now, there is a reason that we get to the fifth saying, which is, I am thirsty. He says it so they can give him something to drink so that he'll be able to say with loudness and clarity the next statement. We'll see that next statement next week. But that statement is, it is finished. He wanted to be able to say it clearly so everyone would know what has happened. Every scripture, every prophecy, every promise was completely fulfilled. And I guarantee you, you can count on the Bible. Every time there's a prophecy, every time there's a promise, you can guarantee that God's perfect word will come to pass. After he takes the wine and he's able to speak, he says, it is finished. Go back to Luke chapter 23. I just want you to see the end part of this. Luke 23, verse 45. Notice something very special. I'll put the two verses together, 44 and 45. is now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell upon the whole land to the ninth hour. We know it's now the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. And what notice? The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, the other Gospels put this after his death, but Luke just tells us a little bit about it, gives us the idea. Now, what in the world is the veil in the temple? Most of you know this, but in the temple there was a place out front where they offered the sacrifices. And then you went to a place called the Holy Place. It was a room, and it was divided by a curtain because in the back part of this was called the Holy of Holies. So there was the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. If you walked into the Holy Place... Over here was a lampstand. Over here was a table with 12 loaves of bread. And right here in the back of the room was an, was an altar. It was a golden altar and it had incense. There was a curtain right there. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, a priest, certain priests could go in the front room. They could make sure the lamp is going. They could switch out the bread. They could make sure the altar's burning. But they could not go behind the curtain. Only one priest, the high priest, could go behind the curtain and only one time on the Day of Atonement. That's the only time he could go back there. That curtain symbolized that the way to God was not open yet, that the barrier of sin had not been dealt with. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what does it say happened? And the veil of the temple was torn in two. One of the other Gospels, we'll see it next week, says it was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying God is the one tearing it. And now the way is open to God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's how you come to the Father. The way is now open because He's dealt with sin. He has paid the penalty of sin. Anyone who believes in Jesus goes to be with the Father. That's the key. We'll see more of that next time. So <clears throat> Jesus came, died for our sin, rose again, veil is torn. Next time we'll see his final two statements on the cross. This morning we've seen Jesus on the cross. It's darkness from 12 to 3. Jesus taking the sin of mankind. He's separated from the Father. He's paying the penalty of sin. He says, I thirst. And he's going to say, he's going to be ready for him to say, it is finished. The veil is torn from the top to the bottom. The way is now open. The payment has been Made. It's so powerful. Let me give you some applications. First one is this. Understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins. That's what he came for. He came to die on the cross to pay for sins. A, he is the sacrifice, the Savior, and the substitute. Now, I want you to understand this. You are not the Savior. 
There are a lot of people who say things like, I'll try to be good, I'll get baptized, I'll go to church, I'll try to keep the Ten Commandments, I'll turn away from my sins, I'll do this. They think somehow by what they do can save them. You are not the Savior. You cannot save yourself. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ is the only one who could die and be separated and come back from the dead. He is the one. He is the Savior. He is the sacrifice, Savior, and substitute. B. He took man's sin on himself. He took your sin and my sin, in fact, the sin of every human being, and paid that penalty. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one our own way, but the Lord has laid on him our iniquities. First Peter 2, 24, he bore in his body our sins. So we never want to take that for granted. See, he was separated from the Father. That is the payment for sin. Spiritually separated from the Father. The wages of sin is death. He died for us. Now, what do we do? Number two, trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you realize, A, that he died in our place? It should have been us. We've sinned. He took our place. He made the payment. In fact, B, the payment has been made. That's why he said everything has been accomplished. That's why he says it is finished. There's not one thing for us to do. We can't do anything. We're not the Savior. C, we come to God by faith. We believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now what I hope and pray is this. That every one of you in this room. That you already know Christ is Savior. If somebody said are you going to heaven? You'd say yes because I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. He died for me. He rose again. I'm trusting Him and Him alone. It's not my goodness or righteousness. It's just Jesus. He's my Savior. I hope every one of you in, that room, in this room believe that. If you have never trusted Christ, where you're sitting right now, you can believe that He died for you, that He is your substitute, He is the sacrifice, that He's opened the way for you, that He's given you eternal life as a gift simply by faith. And right where you're sitting, you can believe that, and you have eternal life this exact moment. It is not walking down an aisle. It is not giving your life to Jesus. It is not making a commitment. It is not turning away from sins. It is not what you do that saves you. It is Jesus and Him alone that saves you, and it is your faith in Him as your Savior, He gives you eternal life. The most famous verse in the Bible is God so loved the world, us, that He gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross, pay for sin, and rise again, that whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. It is that simple. What a passage. Wow. We come to God by faith. May we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, knowing that He died on the cross to pay for sins, being separated from the Father, and brings eternal life to all who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you that Jesus died for us, that he is the sacrifice, the Savior, the substitute, that he took our sins upon himself, that he was separated from the Father, paying the penalty of sin, and that, Lord, we trust in Jesus as Savior, that he died for us, and it's all been done, and simply by faith alone in Jesus Christ, you give to us eternal life. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, or will trust Him even right now. Thank you, Lord, that we can know we have eternal life simply by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.